it's about as embarrassing a moment as the Cowboys have had since, I guess, the early 2000s when they couldn't even put a winning record together. But the standard in Dallas is supposed to be higher than that. And this is just a very, very unfortunate reminder of how far the standard has fallen. One of my most surprises since I've been involved in sport, period. Oh, don't you worry, Jerry Jones. You were not the only one that was surprised. It's a little bit of a theme for Wild Card Weekend. Hi there. Welcome into the NFL on Fox podcast presented by Verizon. I'm Dave Hellman. And yeah, surprise would be an understatement for the whole weekend. We had a couple of upsets. How about the surprise of the fact that we've only played four wildcard games to date? Since the last time we did a show, one of those games got moved. The Buffalo Bills and the Pittsburgh Steelers play today as a result of the winter storm in the Buffalo area. So yeah, we have a completely different show than we expected to do for starters. But we led with Jerry Jones for a reason because that is going to take all of the headlines coming out of this wildcard weekend, the Green Bay Packers march in to AT&T Stadium and dismantle Jerry Jones's Dallas Cowboys by a score of 48 to 32 in one of the more surprising playoff games that I've ever seen. And if you think I'm exaggerating, I looked this up during the game. Yes, the Cowboys scored some points at the end to make it much closer. But at times in the third and fourth quarter, when they were trailing by 24-plus points, the Dallas Cowboys were on the receiving end of one of the five worst home losses in the wildcard era. Goes all the way back to 1978, guys. Been playing wildcard games for almost 50 years in the NFL. And prior to some late-game stat padding, we'll call it, the Dallas Cowboys were getting wrecked at a level we just don't see from division champions in these types of games. It was shocking, and we got a lot to say about it. But for starters, we got to give the Green Bay Packers their love. Like, yes, there's a lot to say about the number two seed in the NFC playoffs crashing out so unceremoniously. But the Green Bay Packers did win. They got a phenomenal performance from their young quarterback, Jordan Love, who continues to be a dude. So as we bring in Greg Olson and Kevin Burkhart, our guys on the call in Arlington, that's where we're going to start with the Green Bay Packers and a phenomenal day from them. Guys, I feel bad because on a night like tonight, there's a million places I could go for Green Bay, right? So many great performances. But when the quarterback making his first playoff start is an incompletion away from a perfect passer rating, I think that's got to take top billing. I mean, what? What was what was working for Jordan Love? Or maybe the better question is, what wasn't? I mean, goodness gracious. Yeah, I'm laughing because the only reason he didn't have a perfect passer rating is because they're trying to salt the game when he throws a little, you know, flare and, and just misses to Tucker Craft. Otherwise, he had a perfect rating. But that's neither here nor there. Look, we had. We, I keep going back to Thanksgiving game, but that's where their season turned around. I remember you saying we walked out of that booth and you're like, man, this kid is good. And you, your first playoff game is that? That was unbelievable. Yeah, I think we all knew he was good. I think he took it to another level here. Yeah. I think this is where you kind of cement yourself and saying, okay, not only am I a full-time starter in this league, obviously that, that had been put to rest weeks ago, 
but he's one of the top quarterbacks in the league. I mean, the last eight weeks of the regular season, then, of course, here, first round of the playoffs, you can't suggest otherwise. I mean, it's it, I don't even know how else to put it. I mean, this is as dominant of a win as we've seen in years. And it was done by a team of a bunch of guys that before the season had really never played football at the professional it's level. It's crazy. I mean, it's, and everyone in the NFC North thinking, okay, you know what? Maybe this is our time to take yeah. over the division. Yeah. yeah, maybe not. Maybe not indeed. I, I hate to turn the focus away from such a great performance by Green Bay, but... I mean, it's the first number two seed to lose in this new play playoff format for Dallas. It's a brutal loss by them. Y'all are in the building. I mean, what what was the vibe there in Dallas with this game getting so out of hand for them? And, and where do you see this going after such a big disappointment? I don't know. You know, it's funny. We were talking there. There was almost a quiet vibe to this game in the beginning. I, I don't know what it was. Maybe because it was 10 degrees out of here before the game. But look, this team, this team thought they were a Super Bowl team, and, and who can blame them? And they, they were great this year. They won 12 games. They were dominant at home. They figured they had at least uh, at least two home games if they, if they handled their own business and then go from there. I don't, the answer is I don't know where to go because they've been as successful in the regular season as any team in the league under Mike McCarthy. It just hasn't translated in the postseason. Yeah, and I don't think there's any easy solutions. I think if anybody knew, okay, this is exactly why right. the regular season doesn't translate into the postseason. I think they're lying. I, I think it's a combination of things. I think at the surface level, they played really bad. This is yeah. the worst they've ever played at home in two years, right? So you start there, and then you start pulling away the layers of, okay, how do they rebuild this team? How do they get a little better on defense defending the run? They're not going to play every game in a pass environment, making the opposing team trail them. Having all these defensive backs out there that can't stop the run, doesn't matter if they can rush the passer. So I think there's some some roster stuff, some philosophy stuff. Obviously, there's a lot of question marks with Dan Quinn. Is he going to get a head job? Mm -hmm. Dak Prescott's contract, CeeDee Lamb's contract. They've, they've got a lot of things to answer. They knew it was coming in the post, you know, after the postseason. Nobody in Dallas thought the postseason would end this quickly. Lot of questions for the Cowboys, but that is not the Packers' problem. They're on to the divisional round. Guys, we'll talk to you all next weekend. I appreciate it as always. Look forward to it. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Let me reiterate to any Packer fan listening, we're going to get to your team. In fact, our own Fox Sports NFC North writer, Carmen Vitale, was at AT&T Stadium Sunday night. We're going to talk to her, all things Packers, coming up in just a few minutes. But I covered the Dallas Cowboys for 10 years. I'm one way or another invested in this whole drama far more than I'd like to admit. And that's where we're going to start with, in my time around the team, what I truly feel has to be considered the worst collapse of the modern era, the worst collapse of the post-triplets era when the Cowboys could regularly be expected to make noise in the playoffs. And look, I mean, if you want to rehash the actual game, we can. If you listen to the NFL on Fox podcast, I have a feeling you saw it. Dan Quinn and the Dallas defense had absolutely no answer for Jordan Love. Their, their coverage was completely overwhelmed by the Packers receiving options, by the play calls Matt LaFleur was dialing up. We'll get into more of that later. Dak Prescott, I've been quick to defend him my entire career. To quote him, I sucked tonight. Dak Prescott was bad. All of the stats in the box score, I mean, you can throw for all the hundreds of yards that you want, but in the competitive portion of this game, it was practically no contest. And I'll tell you, why it it's so jarring and so much more disappointing than normal. I've heard this, this narrative going around for a while that the Cowboys choke in the playoffs. Dak Prescott 
the, the word is choke in the playoffs. And honestly, I've taken issue with it for a while because going back through the years, yes, the Cowboys have obviously lost playoff games. They haven't been in the Super Bowl since 1995. But choking implies losing a game you were supposed to win. And walk me back through those. Okay, 2014 and 2016 to Green Bay. Yes, in one of those games, at least, the Cowboys were the higher-seeded team. But you're talking about playing eventual four-time MVP Aaron Rodgers in the playoffs. One of those on the road. Is that a choke? Is it a choke for a rookie Dak Prescott to lose to a two-time MVP Aaron Rodgers? I personally don't think so. Is it a choke to go to Lambeau Field and lose in the final minutes to an MVP and Aaron Rodgers? I don't think so. Fast forward to 2021. Yes, they lose to a lower-seeded San Francisco team. They were three-point favorites at home in that game against a 49er team that had two years ago been in the Super Bowl that knew what it take to win in the playoffs. Last year, they do what they're supposed to. They win this wild-card game as a favorite. They go to San Francisco and play that same stacked Niners team that had just been in an NFC title game. Hard-fought game, clearly overmatched by San Francisco, but they were underdogs and they lost by seven. Again, to, to the biggest bully in the NFC, the Niners who have regularly gone through these wars year after year. All of these exits are disappointing. They're not no-shows of the magnitude of being a seven-point home favorite against a team that's quite literally never done this. Yes, of course, there are some veterans on Green Bay's roster, some guys that know what it's like to play in big playoff spots. But when you're playing a first-year starter quarterback who's never done this before, you're supposed to have the mental edge as well as the talent edge. And guess what? The paper says the Cowboys should have plenty of talent. Prior to this game, the All-Pro teams were released. All of the... All of the big team honors have been announced short of MVP and the major individual awards. And the Cowboys stack up just as well as anybody in the NFL. Nine all pros. 1,700-yard receiver in CeeDee Lamb, who inexplicably went MIA for the first 40 minutes of this game. Dak Prescott, named an all pro. A lot of people were stumping for him to win MVP heading into this game a defensive player of the year candidate in Micah Parsons, the league interception leader in Deron Bland, two potential Hall of Fame offensive linemen, a promising young guard. People will tell you Tyler Smith was one of the best handful of guards in the NFL this year, the most consistent kicker in football. Need I go on? It's not to say the Packers were hopelessly overmatched. Clearly not. But this, more than any game that's happened in the last couple of decades, is a game the Dallas Cowboys were supposed to win. They got blown off the field. And that, like I said, hours and hours after the game, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. And from listening to Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, he feels the exact same way. Uh, but this uh, seems like the, uh, the, the most uh, painful uh, because uh, we all had such great expectation and we had hope for this team and uh, uh, thought that we were aligned in a great shape in great shape and uh, uh, it didn't happen for us and it's as fresh on me right now as it is on anybody else but I don't uh, I won't get into uh, any uh, of the uh, addressing of any aspects of any part of it from um, the coaching to the players to what's around the corner uh, 
I can't predict to a certainty what's around the corner as far as it pertains to Cowboys head coach Mike McCarthy, but I'm going to guess you want to keep an eye on this space and the NFL news cycle over the next two or three days. Hopefully this isn't out of date already by the time you've heard it. But I think after a a stretch like this, keep in mind the Dallas Cowboys have the second most regular season wins in the NFL over the last three years. The only team they trail is the Kansas City Chiefs, the standard that everybody is chasing in the league currently. And what do they have to show for it? Other than a series of embarrassing exits, this one, the most embarrassing of all. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not going to call for Mike McCarthy's job, but I will tell you, I won't be surprised if sometime today, sometime Tuesday, he is no longer the coach of the Dallas Cowboys or Dan Quinn, the highly coveted defensive coordinator who's interviewed for head coaching jobs. Won't be surprised if whether it's for a new job or simply it's time for something different, if he is on the way out as well. I think drastic changes are on the way. And even past the the next three days, What's around the corner feels bleak to me for the Dallas Cowboys. And that's why heading into this season, I picked them to win the Super Bowl. And I'm not even embarrassed about it because my my logic was, and I've said this a hundred times, if not now, then when? I laid out everything that they have on their roster. I laid out what they've done in the regular season. If they had taken care of business, they would have been guaranteed at least two home playoff games. It was all there. There's nothing missing from this recipe on paper anyway. Clearly, it's missing when they actually have to play these postseason games. Now, fast forward. I mentioned Hall of Fame offensive lineman Tyron Smith headed for free agency, nearing the end of a decorated career. Tony Pollard is a free agent. You got free agents among your key difference makers all over your defense. Then there's the matter of the contracts that need to be handed out. C.D. Lamb and Micah Parsons are due to be paid at the top of the market at two of the most lucrative positions in football. How are you going to juggle that while trying to put a competitive team around them? And then there's the matter of the quarterback. Honestly, your opinion of Dak Prescott is kind of irrelevant at this point. He fell way, way short of the expectations in this game. It's one of the low, low points of his career, maybe the lowest of all, because again, at least... You lose to the 49ers and throw two interceptions. That's almost expected given the circumstances. He was expected to really put his stamp on this game, and he fell woefully short. I can hear the angry Facebook fans saying, cut him or trade him, get him off the team today. It's not realistic. He's entering the final year of a contract that's slated to cost the Cowboys $60 million against the cap. Honestly, the only thing that could help the Cowboys from a financial standpoint is to extend him. We had these conversations earlier in the season. Does anybody want to do that right now? I don't blame you if you don't based on this showing, but what's the alternative? Fielding a roster that's crippled by that cap hit that damn sure can't be better than the team that just got bounced in the wild card round? I don't know the answer. We don't have to know the answer in January, but like I said... Next year's team looks like it's going to have a long road in front of it to even hope to be as good as this one. And this one fell four full wins short of the ultimate goal. It's about as embarrassing a moment as the Cowboys have had since, I guess, the early 2000s when they couldn't even put a winning record together. But the standard in Dallas is supposed to be higher than that. And this is just 
a very, very unfortunate reminder of how far the standard has fallen. Okay. I had to get all of that off my chest. I think I did. I think I did a good job. So there's there's plenty more to talk about here. It's it's the result of the weekend, so we are going to spend a little bit of extra time on it. And now, as promised, there's plenty to talk about from the Packers' standpoint as they get ready to go back on the road and face the San Francisco 49ers. And to talk through all of that, my bud, Carmen Vitale, joins me now. All right, Carm, let's start with an interesting tidbit I just heard from you. You were there in the bowels of AT&T Stadium after this game, and you tell me that despite upsetting the number two seed as the last team into the playoffs, the Green Bay Packers weren't all that hype about this? It was pretty much business as usual, Dave, which we've heard all season long how quarterback Jordan Love, it might be his first year as starter, but this guy is no rookie, and he is even keel. He is even Steven, never gets too high, never gets too low, which is a wonderful Uh, characteristic of a quarterback. But at the same time, I think I expected a little bit of emotion out of him coming into the tunnel off the field. And yet it was just business as usual. This is, this is what was supposed to happen. Nobody was surprised. Apparently. Do you attribute that? I mean, look, the guy's on a heater, which by the way, I'm going to continue to insist. You take a little bit of a victory lap here. The guy just posted basically a perfect passer rating to get his first playoff win. Is that, is that the influence of Jordan Love, do you think? Is it just the confidence that they've been playing with here over the last month? Is it Matt LaFleur? What do you attribute that kind of quiet confidence to? I think that's how Jordan Love is as a person in general. This doesn't seem like this is a departure at all from who he was the last three years when he was with the organization riding the bench behind Aaron Rodgers. You never heard from Jordan Love. You never heard stories about Jordan Love, even though he really was champing at the bit to get out there and prove what he could do. That's what he talked about in his press conference after the game, saying it feels good. And he's kind of fighting back a smile. And so I think he was kind of trying to keep himself a little bit more even keel. But at the same time, everything is coming together for the Packers at this point. The offense is clicking because they have more experience together. They have more experience against NFL opponents. And then you also have Matt LaFleur now having more trust in his offense because he can tell that they're clicking and he's opening up the playbook. And like we saw, you had Aaron Jones running all over the place, doing things that he does against the Cowboys every single time. And you had Tucker Craft and Luke Musgrave both. Uh, Tucker or Luke Musgrave finally got into the end zone on that t- that tight end leak play that they ran against the Chicago Bears in Week One. Although Luke stumbled on that play, and this one he got a touchdown. So everything is just coming together for the Packers, and pretty much it seems like they expected this to happen all along. I want to go back to that, and I, okay, I'm glad I'm glad you're here to remind me. It was the season opener. Like as soon as as soon as I saw that leak play by Luke Musgrave, I was like, holy crap, yep. they pulled it back out of the bag. But they that was my big Wait, I'm sorry, what? No, they pulled it back out. That it, was that was the exact play. That's what uh, Luke told us in the locker room afterwards. I lo- I love it a lot, and I feel like it's a theme for the night. All due respect to Aaron Jones. I mean, the guy clearly goes off against the Cowboys. He had a wonderful night, but my biggest takeaway from watching this offense was just how discombobulated the Cowboys look trying to cover it. I mean, even without the Musgrave play, you've just got guys breaking open, getting lost in the zone. You talked about Matt LaFleur opening up his playbook. How dangerous is it when you mix this kind of talent 
with this type of play calling? Because it, it seemed like they were both in their bag on, on equal sides. Yeah, it's so well-rounded. And the biggest thing that hit me was that Dallas clearly didn't game plan for Romeo Dobbs. And why would they have? He has had kind of a quiet couple of weeks. He's had a quiet season for all, for, for that matter. We all thought that Romeo Dobbs was going to be Jordan Love's number one target. Hasn't quite worked out that way because he's given way to girl, guys like Jaden Reed and Dontavian Wicks and these guys that were not on anyone's radar before. So when that happens, you can only game plan for so many people if you're the Dallas Cowboys or if you're any defense. And at that point now, uh, you saw what Romeo Dobbs was able to do, those just gashing chunk plays where he gets completely lost in the zone and nobody is accounting for him. And he's picking up 20 plus yards on nearly every single one of his catches. This is a guy that had over 150 yards uh, in, in his first playoff game. It's, it's incredible. So let me ask you this. And I asked the same question to Greg Olson and Kevin Burkhart. I've covered some dark moments at AT&T stadium. I've been there for some really deflating losses this really feels like it takes the cake for me. And whether it was the vibe in the building when the score started to get away from him or Jerry Jones in the post game facing all of these questions about what's to come in the future. I mean, how, I guess for lack of a better phrasing, how bad was it there for a Cowboys team that, you know, it seemed like on their end, they thought that this was going to be a formality and it was anything but that. That was blatantly obvious. Honestly, the Dallas Cowboys came in and even those first couple of plays completely controlled the line of scrimmage. They had every expectation they were going to win this game. And why not? They're playing a bunch of no names, as I believe uh, Jaquan Brisker of the Chicago Bears called these guys. And they didn't know what to expect. Nobody knew what to expect out of Green Bay. But that's the fun part of this league. I don't think I accounted for the fact that. Dallas, though, wasn't going to be able to do something they've been doing all season, which is get the ball to CeeDee Lamb. He had two catches that first half. It's just incredible when you think about the fact that this was a high-flying offense with an MVP caliber quarterback playing at home where they've been so successful, and they just couldn't muster anything. They couldn't get anything going. And it was against a Joe Barry defense, which has taken its lumps, we all know, this, this season, but behind a pass rush. And let me tell you, this Green Bay secondary – they came up with some huge plays, including multiple interceptions. This is a team that only had seven interceptions in the regular season. And now this is in the first playoff game, in the first half of a playoff game, you get an interception. And then you also get a pick six for Darnell Savage, who was so not even, he didn't even care about it that in the locker room, he didn't even talk. He was like, nah, I don't like other guys can talk. I don't feel like talking after getting a pick six. What are we doing? A pick six that broke the game open, my guy. Give yourself broke the game. a little bit more of a pat on the back. I mean, I was sitting there watching thinking, okay, Dallas has a chance to climb back in this thing here. You know, they can cut it and they get the ball after halftime. Maybe this could be dicey. And Darnell Savage said, absolutely not, which I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but the Packers are going to need their DBs to travel again next week. We don't have to preview Packers Niners right now. But it is awfully fitting that this young team that seems like they don't know what they don't know, they now have a chance to go slay the dragon that has plagued them all these years. I just, I love the, uh, I love how that, you know, everything kind of comes together in the end and they get a chance to try to do what former Packer teams couldn't. 
Yeah, we talked about the wild card round with NFL scriptwriters being in their bag, but it looks like that's only continuing. You have the Cowboys melting down as they've done. The Packers have won 10 of their last 11 games against Dallas. They have been the Cowboys boogeyman. And even without Aaron Rodgers, they're still the stuff of nightmares for these guys. But now they're going to go into San Francisco and play a team that's been their boogeyman and has been the ones that they can't get past. And Matt LaFleur in particular. Also, Matt LaFleur going against his mentor and Kyle Shanahan. It's just going to be an incredible game. I don't know how long this Packers ride is going, but let me tell you, even if they're not outwardly showing it, these, this Green Bay Packers team and these Green Bay Packer fans are going to ride it and have a lot of fun as long as it goes. I don't blame them. I was prepared for a lot of outcomes. I don't think I was prepared for the Packers to flex their muscle so completely, like as as fun and joyous as it must feel for Green Bay, that is how disappointing and bleak it must feel for the Cowboys to not just lose, but to really get run off their own field as a, a seven-point yeah. favorite. I, it's it's going to take some time to process it, but Carmen Vitale, you have, you have done wonders to help me understand. Safe travels back from DFW. I appreciate it, my friend. Thanks so much for having me obviously got a lot to say about the Green Bay Packers after a win like that and we're going to keep it going in the Sunday Six with our coaching spotlight who else to feature but the coaching staff of the Green Bay Packers today's coaching spotlight is brought to you by Verizon it's the official private wireless network of the NFL's coach to coach communications and there's multiple people I want to highlight here but let's start it off with the star of the show Matt LaFleur there's so much debate about where Matt LaFleur ranks in the hierarchy of NFL coaches. He coached Aaron Rodgers to back-to-back MVPs, plenty of success with the Packers over the course of his time there, but he had Aaron Rodgers. He had the greatest quarterback in the league at the time, one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the game. How much of it was really the coach and how much was the player? Well, rewind to where things stood for Green Bay with the youngest roster in the NFL. Maybe you've heard that stat a few times over the course of the last week. First-year starter at quarterback. Their top six receivers are all first- and second-year players. You knew there were going to be growing pains, and the hope that their defense would carry them through it turned out to be a fatally flawed logic. They finished the season 27th in total defensive DVOA. So even the idea that, hey, if the defense can keep us in some games, the offense can figure it out, that wasn't even true for the vast majority of this season. At midseason, the Green Bay Packers were 3-6. and six. They'd scored more than 20 points on just two occasions all season long. Now, fast forward to where we are right now with the Green Bay Packers heading into the divisional round of the playoffs. The rebuild happened faster than you could ever imagine. You know, there's construction going on by your house in one minute. It's a hole in the ground and you blink an eye and it's a fully formed building. Yeah, that's what we're dealing with here in Green Bay as Jordan Love finishes a point away from a perfect passer rating. The Packers zip up and down the field on a once fearsome Dallas Cowboys defense. You've got Romeo Dobbs looking like a guy. You've got two different tight ends making plays all over this offense. The the star of the season, Jaden Reed, the Packers leading receiver, didn't even play as big of a role as he's used to as more and more pieces of this thing just continue to come along. And on top of all the young talent, 
Matt LaFleur was just flipping every switch at just the right time. The play calls were always right. The balance was perfect. Got the running game involved. Felt like a dozen of the Packers play calls left the Cowboys completely discombobulated. Looked like Dallas tried to play a lot more zone defense than usual against Green Bay. I would call it a failed experiment with the way Jordan Love was able to diagnose it, find his guys, and then flip over to the other side because, yes, Matt LaFleur deserves flowers. I think he deserves more mention in the Coach of the Year conversation. I don't think he'll win it, but I don't think that's crazy. But let's make sure we give some credit to a guy who is maybe the most maligned coach in the NFL this season, a guy that I have criticized plenty over the course of the year. That would be defensive coordinator Joe Barry the third-year guy who has overseen one of the most disappointing units in the NFL this season. I don't know if one great game changes the entire conversation. I'm sure Packers fans are listening to this right now saying, no, absolutely not. We still need to change some things there. But right now, in the playoffs where nothing else matters, credit to Joe Barry for putting together a game plan that completely befuddled the Dallas Cowboys while this game was still in doubt. Look at the box score, and it's going to tell you the Cowboys scored a lot of points and gained a lot of yards. It's bogus. If you watch this game, you know Dak Prescott had no answers for what Green Bay was doing when this game was still up in the air. I mentioned Dallas playing more zone coverage. It looked like Dak had no idea what to do with Green Bay playing zone. How many throws were into areas where a defender was lurking and Dak didn't even see it? How many ill-advised decisions did he get away with and that's not to mention the ones that he didn't. A pick six by Darnell Savage is what put this game basically out of reach, minus the garbage time rally. And he was just hanging out in his zone, and Dak completely lost track of him. Maybe it's basic stuff, but while this score was close, the Dallas offense had no clue what to do. They seemed completely discombobulated. They could not handle Green Bay's coverage. And I would argue Dak had a clean pocket most of the night as well. So it's not even the age-old issue of pressure, Dak Prescott just couldn't handle the different looks that he was getting. It's a credit to Joe Barry. It's a credit, obviously, plenty of talented players on Green Bay's defense. They haven't always lived up to it. And on Sunday, they did. I don't give a damn what the box score says. A, a phenomenal performance from Joe Barry and his guys to hold the Cowboys down until Matt LaFleur, Jordan Love, and his offense took care of the rest. An incredible performance all around on Sunday and throughout the season to take a team that far too many people wrote off from the beginning and push them into the final eight of the 2023 season. Incredible stuff. All right, I think we've hit Cowboys Packers from just about every angle imaginable. So let's move on to the most entertaining game of the wild card round so far, at least. That would be the Sunday night finale, the LA Rams heading up to Detroit. We talked about it. Everybody knows Matthew Stafford going back to his old team. Jared Goff trying to stick one to Sean McVay and the Rams. And you know what? He did. The Lions outlast the LA Rams 24 to 23, thanks to some gutsy decision-making by Dan Campbell at the end. Get to that in a minute. Just, just a fun physical football game through and through. So many big-time throws between Stafford and Goff. Some key stops from the defenses, which were seen as the weak units in this game. We'll talk in a second about the red zone and the factor that it played. But in a weekend where, I mean, let's be honest, like the drama was a little bit lacking in the first three games. 
Lions Rams really delivered. And here to talk to me about it now, we got our friend Eric Williams, Fox Sports NFC West writer, to break it all down. All right, Eric, for a game like this, let's obviously start at the end. I love the guts by Dan Campbell to go for the gusto there in a in a tight moment. And at the same time, I'm guessing Sean McVay maybe wishes he had a couple of those timeouts available there in the final two or so minutes of this game. Yeah, I was thinking about that too, Dave, when he when he had to waste them early in the second half, uh, you know, because of of clock management issues in terms of, you know, getting the playoff. And you're right, you know, obviously he could have used them at the end of the game to maybe extend the game a little bit. Uh, but you know, bottom line, give the Detroit Lions props. You know, they they played the game the way that they needed to play it, uh, kind of played keep away a little bit from LA's offense. You know, to be able to to score touchdowns on the first three drives, I think was big to get momentum early because you knew at some point the Rams were going to get going on offense. And then really this game was decided in the red zone. Rams were 0 for 3 in the red zone, had to settle for three field goals. Um, the Lions were three for three in the red zone with three touchdowns. And I think, you know, that was that was what kind of sealed it uh, for the for the Rams. That was going to be where I went next. The Rams got to the 11 or closer three times. So it's not even just stalling out in the red zone, but mm-hmm. a couple of times stalling out inside the 10 yard line. What did you see in those sequences, whether, you know, play calling on Sean McVay's part or or obviously execution there by Detroit to proverbially bend but not break? I think it's about trust. And I think in that situation, Matthew Stafford trusts Cooper Cup. But if Cooper Cup can't win, then who else is he going to go to in that situation? And then you saw that even when Cup was covered, he was going to him and, and trying to see if he could make a play. And, and Cup wasn't able to, to create separation in those moments. I also thought he could have ran the football a little bit more in that situation to try to loosen up them defensively or maybe look to go to somebody like Tutu Atwell. Um, so I think maybe more diversity in, in terms of what they were, they were calling there. And and that's that's been um, something that they've dealt with over the year, you know, in terms of whether or not they're calling enough runs in the red zone to kind of keep defenses honest and not just, you know, targeting cup every time. Please take this wherever you want to go with it. And maybe it, it sounds silly because both these teams won double digit games, but I feel like this was the biggest showcase of the year for both the Rams and the lions in terms of just having the entire NFL community watching their game and so many amazing performances. I mean, Puka Nakua showing everybody what he's all about. Amon Ross St. Brown had a wonderful night catching the, you know, the clutch pass there at the end to help the Lions put it away. Aiden Hutchinson, two sacks on the night. So many fantastic performances. Did anybody in particular on either side really jump out to you? Yeah, I can't believe we got this far along without talking about Puka, who just was a beast, you know, continue to just kind of you know, make plays um, all over the field, um, missed tackles, uh, creating missed, missed tackles and and winning contested catches. And I thought kind of single-handedly at times carried that offense. Uh, Kyron Williams at times, you know, showed some, some bursts, even though he had the hand injury. Um, I think we talked about it earlier. For me, it was the Detroit, Detroit's offensive line kind of allowed them to control this game because of their ability to create balance by, by allowing them to run the football. And then for the most part, keeping Jared 
off clean, which means keeping Aaron Donald off of him. You didn't really hear Aaron Donald's name much. And that's a good thing if it's if you're the Detroit Lions. So I think you got to give them a lot of credit for for what they were able to get done offensively. Yeah, I think I mean, look, if you watch the game, Matthew Stafford's just had such a fun season. The throws that he makes, the the way he sees the field right now, but a really understated performance from Jared Goff as well. Just managed this game. And, you know, I think that's that that term has such a negative connotation. But I thought mm-hmm. Jared Goff did such a phenomenal job of taking what was available to him, being aggressive when he needed to be, and not making the mistakes that have doomed the Lions so often this season. You know, when he has these two and three turnover games, that's when it typically goes south. What what do you think could be ahead for the Lions if, like you said, their offensive line is able to dictate games like this moving deeper into the playoffs? I just think you see Jared Goff at his best. I mean, you mentioned it. He didn't turn the ball over, but he also made some big boy throws that allowed them to, to score points. Uh, you know, they have some talented playmakers on the outside. Josh Reynolds, former another former Ram, played well for, for them, a guy that he's comfortable throwing the ball to. They get another home game. Um, I think that's big. You know, you're either going to be playing the Bucks or the Eagles, your Cowboys, of course. I'm sure you talked a bunch about that, uh, you know, are, are done for the year. Uh, so for them to, to be able to get into their home game is huge with the way that the crowd has kind of rallied around them in the community, you know, their first playoff win in, in 32 years. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they're an interesting team to watch move forward. If, if they can kind of sneak Pass one, uh, you know, whether it's the Bucks or the Eagles, and and you know, I'm assuming it's going to be the Niners, but I guess we can't make any assumptions now. Packers are playing pretty good. Um, they have a chance to make a little run here, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, look, we we beat that uh, we beat that officiating controversy with the Lions and the Cowboys into the ground as far as we could, but yeah, on behalf of all Cowboy related media, this does feel like some karma is not the right word, but it's just, it's so fitting that the Cowboys slip up opens the door for the lions to be in such a better position and get that extra home game. We'll see what they could do with it. You are, you are our NFC West writer. So I'll, I'll end it here. We'll have more time to talk about the lions. Their season's not done. I'm interested by, by the Rams here because I mean, on one level, it's such a fun success story, such a young team, that so many people didn't see coming, but at the same time, so many veteran leaders and and those guys, your Staffords, your Donalds, not getting any younger. Mm-hmm. I, I we got all off season to talk about it, but in the short term, I mean, how do you view this? I mean, I guess all playoff exits are missed opportunities, but maybe the future is a little bit brighter than than your average team that just lost a heartbreaker. Yeah, I think so because, like we talked about, they never expected to be in this situation. Uh, anyway, you know, based on where their roster was going into the year, you know, I think if they would have finished around 500, I think that they would have considered that success for this team. Instead, they they get to double digit wins, as you mentioned. Uh, they develop a lot of young players that are able to experience the postseason, which I think is is big because of the heightened sense of intensity for for these games. And so they they get a taste of that, and and now you can go back and kind of continue to kind of build on what you have. He looks like you have a number one receiver in, in Puka Nakua. You have another guy that can rush from the interior in Kobe Turner. And you found a, a, a legit, you know, number one back in Kyron Williams. So you're able to, to, 
to, to figure out a lot of important positions on the field. You know, Matthew Stafford, like you mentioned, though, is not getting any younger. Aaron Donald's not getting any younger. Cooper Cup. And so what do you do with those guys moving forward because you have a much younger team? Are you trying to replace those guys? Are you going to sign off for them for them being around for another year and continue to build around those pieces? Um, it looks like Sean McVay is energized and he's going to go into the offseason, uh, you know, wanting to, to do more with his, this team. I think that's good. Um, but, you know, you are concerned a little bit with with Matthew Stafford and, and the injuries keep piling up and can he continue to to play at an elite level. Gutsy, gutsy effort, speaking of that, on his part to get through that game in front of the old hometown crowd. But it is the Detroit Lions who come out on top. They continue their march through the postseason. Don't worry, though, Eric. You do still have a team playing in this postseason. And, yeah, you're right. That I, I don't know if, if Niners, Packers, if I would have thought that it had juice, you know, a month ago. But it certainly does right now. And I can't wait to talk to you about it when we get closer to divisional weekend. Thanks, man. Yeah, no problem. Sounds good. Take care, Dave. All right, let's keep our Sunday six moving by throwing it back to Saturday, the Saturday night game between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Miami Dolphins. I hope everybody at Arrowhead, shoot, I hope everybody in that part of the country has had a chance to thaw out a little bit. The fourth coldest game in NFL history sees the Chiefs romp to a, a not an easy win. The Dolphins made them kick a lot of field goals, made them work for it down in the red zone. Kansas City Chiefs get away with a 26-7 win, a game that never really felt like it was in doubt after, I don't know, late in the second quarter. When did Tyreek Hill score that touchdown? Yeah. Tyreek scores a minute into the second quarter. You think, maybe we got a game on our hands. And it's really all Chiefs from there. Even with a 13-7 lead, it felt really safe. Yes, it's cliche. Yes, it's easy to put it all on the quarterback. But this game, more than anything, was just a demonstration of what it can do for you when you have that guy versus when you have not that guy. I guess that sounds mean to Tua Tungavailoa. I'm not trying to close the book on his career. But the difference in this game was palpable. Patrick Mahomes in negative whatever weather, fourth coldest game on record. You go into it thinking it's going to be this ground and pound game. Patrick Mahomes throws the ball 41 times for 262 yards and a touchdown, which isn't, don't get me wrong, it's not mind-boggling by anybody's standards, let alone Patrick's, but the ability to air the ball out in that wind and that cold, the display of arm strength, the timing, Vic Fangio sent the house at him 18 times, blitzing him all night because the Dolphins didn't have a pass rush and it didn't matter a lick because the guy can rifle it in there in literally any condition. Rasheed Rice is the beneficiary, eight for 130 and a touchdown. All of a sudden you say, Rasheed Rice, the rookie out of SMU, he's been showing flashes all year. If you're looking for a bright spot in the Chiefs receiver core, it's been him. But he's had his down moments as well. That's why the Chiefs are in this position playing on wildcard weekend in the first place. But if it looks like that, you can see the vision. You can see the vision for how the Chiefs piece this thing together. Rasheed Rice with a smattering of Travis Kelsey. He did have a bad drop early, but didn't come back to bite him. Get just enough going on the ground. And oh yeah, Patrick Mahomes, when his rocket arm's not doing all the work, he scrambles just twice. But those two scrambles go for 41 yards. They pick up huge conversions on eventual field goal drives. So between the two runs, 
And the 39-yard completion to Rasheed Rice, Patrick Mahomes kept three field goal drives alive on a night where the Chiefs needed four of them. Cannot understate this guy's impact. Oh, and he he blew his helmet up too. They had to replace it. He's missing chunks out of it because turns out you're not supposed to get hit in the head in minus four degrees. Who would have thought that helmets weren't cut out for that? Just a, a phenomenal night. And then you flip over to the other side of this, and I think you just you see the limitations of the Miami Dolphins offense when the conditions aren't just right. Dolphins, other than the Hail Mary touchdown to Tyree Kill, which was underthrown in the first place, the Dolphins looked like a team that knew they couldn't push the ball downfield. Don't think Tua Tungavailoa had the arm strength to whip it through the wind and in the cold conditions to try anything downfield. And Steve Spagnola and the Chiefs defense, they just sat on every route underneath all of the screens, all of the underneath balls. They were ready for it. I'm looking at my monitor right now. It says Tua finished with 199 yards. When the game was still up in the air, it was far, far less than that. I think at the start of the fourth quarter or late in the third, Tua had thrown a mere 15 passes. A, because the Dolphins couldn't stay on the field long enough to try anything else, and B, because none of the passes he was attempting were getting converted. Like I said, this doesn't need to be a referendum on the Tua era, I don't know what the Dolphins do from here. He does need a new contract soon. He was part of that 2020 draft class. Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert have already gotten their second deals. Do the Dolphins make him the third? He's played well enough to be a pro bowler. He's led the most explosive offense in football under Mike McDaniel the last two years. But you've seen how toothless it can look in big moments. And look, I know I'm well aware of the extent of the injuries facing the Dolphins in the home stretch of this season. But now go compare it with Fangio's defense in Miami, how many guys they're missing, who they were forced to play at Arrowhead, and how they performed against Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, as opposed to this offense, which again, other than a fluke play that the best receiver in football did most of the work on, This is as toothless and as not scary as I've ever seen the Miami Dolphins look. And I I can hear the angst in Miami. I don't know the answer. It's similar to the situation with Dak Prescott. This isn't something that has to be decided in January. But I won't be surprised if if the last two finishes here, starting so, so hot and fading so, so obviously – I wonder if it prompts soul searching the year before it was injuries that derailed things with Tua. He was healthy this year. He had a phenomenal year, but you saw the limitations and you know, you could also point out maybe you just win a few more regular season games. You get to play this in Miami, but can you count on that? Can you count on trusting that if you're at home in all the right conditions, you can be more successful than this? I say, no. You're going to have years, you're going to have games where you have to do crazy stuff like go to Arrowhead Stadium and compete in freezing temperatures. And the Dolphins, specifically on offense, didn't pass the test in this one. We'll see what they do moving forward. Plenty of time to talk about them as usual. The Kansas City Chiefs, they advance, and now they wait to see. They might still get a home game out of this in the divisional round, depending on what happens between the Bills and Steelers. We'll keep an eye on that as we move toward divisional weekend. The Houston Texans weren't as big of an underdog as the Green Bay Packers in the Saturday early game, but they technically were a a one-and-a-half-point home dog against the Cleveland Browns, and we all know how that turned out. 
Green Bay, not the only team to do a little bit of ass kicking as an underdog. The Houston Texans run the Cleveland Browns out of Houston in a 45 to 14 beatdown. CJ Stroud, absolutely incredible. This Houston offense just continues to be so much fun to watch. By the time Joe Flacco threw two pick sixes, I don't think the Texans even needed them. I think this game was heading toward that conclusion anyway, but the two defensive touchdowns did a lot to hasten it. Looked like it was going to be a banger for about 25 minutes, back and forth, back and forth in the early going of this game, and then it just became a blowout, a banner day for the Texans. They move on to the divisional round. To help me break it all down, who better to talk to than our guy, Fox Sports AFC South writer Ben Arthur, who joins me to talk about the Texans run to the divisional round. All right, Ben, if there was any part of us that thought the Texans were just a feel-good story, I think it went away when C.J. Stroud posted a damn near perfect passer rating against the best defense in football. We're not surprised. We know he's been great all season, but to put a performance like that on tape in the playoffs against that group does it elevate your expectation about what the Texans might be capable of in these playoffs? Because I think not very many people had them going beyond the first, maybe the second round, but that looked yeah. like a very, very dangerous team on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, Dave, this was kind of my inkling to heading into the postseason, right? I think everyone expected like like the Browns to win, uh, even with cj playing but but i I just kept thinking like we we, as you kind of alluded to as well like we we just know what cj stroud has proven to be um at this level and when you have a quarterback of that caliber who regardless of what's thrown at him the stakes the pressure what he's working with or not working with you you have a great chance to win with a quarterback like him so um whoever they end up facing in uh, the divisional round, you have to have some fear if you're that other team. Uh, just You just can't really predict where this is going just because of C.J. Stroud's greatness. Uh, this team has a lot of flaws kind of across the board, like on, on both sides of the ball, and, and maybe they're, they're a little young and, and, and inexperienced, but just because of Stroud... Uh, you, you can never really count them out in any game. Uh, so re- whether they're, they're, they end up going to Baltimore or whether they end up going to Kansas City, uh, both situations, you you know that they're going to be the underdog and many would expect the Texans to lose. But because of C.J. Stroud, you can't count them out because he's proven just too much at this point uh, to count against him. C.J. is incredible. We know that. He makes six throws every game day that there's only three people on earth that can do that. But aside from his talent, I was struck by the job that Houston offensive coordinator Bobby Slowick did against Cleveland. Like I said, Stroud made some incredible plays, but there were also some beautifully schemed looks in this game. You know, the 76-yard touchdown untouched by, um, excuse me, by, by Brevin Jordan. Yeah, just... Stuff like that makes you say, holy cow, I did the math on this. 358 yards on just 38 plays when the starters were in and the Texans were still trying. I mean, that, that that's a first down per snap against this mighty Cleveland defense. We know Bobby Slowick is a name in coaching searching circles. 
How much did you did you see this as as an audition? I mean, how impressed must teams with coaching vacancies be by the job he's done? Yeah, that that was one hell of a audition, right? Like in the playoffs, the number one defense in the NFL, uh, just elite, even historically great according to some measures in terms of pass defense, and to really just constantly attack the pass defense, right? Like. Uh, most of the Texans damage was done via pass, partic- particularly in that first half. Uh, they had completions of what, 76, uh, 37, 27, 20, like, like it was just insane. And and I, I know CJ spoke post game uh, about that aggressiveness that, uh, you know, Bobby wanted the, the offense to play with, wanting to dial up these shots, didn't, not having any fear against uh, this elite secondary uh, th- that the Browns have. And so I think that says a lot about uh, Bobby Slovic, uh, just in, in terms of his confidence, the the aggression uh, that, that he can dial up. And then I think something we've seen throughout the year is just uh, how he's empowered CJ, right? Like, see, like Bobby isn't responsible for CJ, right? Like for for how great he is, but but I think in the way he's empowered him and and trusted him and trusted trusted his insight at times. I think especially early in the year, uh, just really wanting to to hear uh, CJ's feedback on certain things and and how CJ was feeling. Like we don't always see. Uh, coordinators have so much confidence, especially early on in, in rookie quarterbacks, regardless of the talent. And so I think that foundation uh, for, for them to be in as in sync as they were on Saturday, that blueprint was laid early in the year. And so um, you look, you can look at the play calling, you, you can look at that aggression as I spoke about, but really building that trust and that ultimate confidence in in a quarterback who came in kind of unproven despite the talent and, and to really empower him to continue to do what he's done, I think uh, speaks highly about him. And, and I know that's something that uh, these teams with head coaching vacancies are looking at as well, because it's not only about like how smart you are, like how you can scheme these guys up, but how do you maybe empower the players that you coach? How much do you instill confidence in those guys? And I think Bobby has uh, shown that uh, throughout the season. I have a feeling his phone's going to be ringing a little bit here as we get later into January. I'm curious, one element of this offense, the Texans didn't need it. We just, we talked about how aggressive they were in the passing game, but Devin Singletary continues to be on a little bit of a heater here. He had a nice day against Cleveland. He had a solid final month of the season. We don't know who Houston's going to play yet, but... Uh, going against defenses, regardless of whether it's Kansas City or Baltimore, I would imagine they're going to need that run game to show up a little bit more than it has for them. How useful is it or how encouraging is it to see Singletary continue this? No, it's 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 been great, Dave. Like if you're the from from the Texans vantage point, uh, really from the second half of the season on, I mean, he's been one of the most effective and productive running backs in, in all of football. Um, and we, we, I know we discussed this on like earlier, uh, shows, but, uh, the run game, the Texans run game really struggled early in the year and Damian Pierce didn't have that same juice that he had 
as a rookie last year and and Devin Singletary uh, came in and uh, he's kind of just taken reins of that job and and given this offense the sense of balance that it had been looking for since the start of the year. Um, the Texans going into this season wanted to actually, it's hard to believe now, but but they actually wanted to be a run first team. That's what D'Amico Ryans had talked about. That's what Bobby had been talking about using the run to uh, to kind of set up play action and all that all that jazz and, and whatnot. But it's really been CJ carrying this offense afloat. But now that you just have that other component, like if these like going into the divisional round, like if if the Ravens or or, or the Chiefs are able to uh, kind of limit that explosiveness in the past game, you you have a back. And Devin Singletary, who could uh, help out, right, uh, alleviate some of that pressure um, to uh, just make it harder uh, for for, uh, for the opposing defense, just in, in terms of like kind of maybe not knowing what to expect, right? Like, okay, you have to account for CJ's arm and what he's able to do with his pass catchers, but uh, just knowing that you could get gashed in the run game in Devin Singletary, and so I think he's he's been really special uh obviously and uh he's a really patient runner i think as well and uh he just makes them that much more dangerous because cj isn't always gonna look like cj right there are gonna be times where it's gonna be tougher sledding in the passing game and just knowing you have a dependable back uh to to kind of take that pressure off is uh has paid and i think will continue to pay big dividends for, for Houston moving forward. Let's finish with the Texans defense because I mean, everybody knows about Will Anderson Jr. And I hope people know about Jonathan Grenard. But other than that, this isn't a, a unit stocked with household names. And yet the Browns scored their final points on, on like their third possession of the game, like early second quarter, they scored their second touchdown and Houston shut them down after that. Obviously the two picks are a big part of that, but the Browns couldn't move the ball after that, even before the turnovers. What did D'Amico Ryan's adjust that led to that dominance after the early explosion? Yeah, I think, I, I think for one, you have to give a lot of credit to Derek Stingley Jr. And, and you spoke about how these Texans, this Texans defense doesn't really have any household names. I think in a, in a year or two, like Derek Stingley should be that kind of guy. I mean, he doesn't maybe have the personality that uh, kind of aura that that brashness uh, that is maybe typical of like a number one corner. But man, he he totally erased Amari Cooper uh, in the game. If you remember, he had that he he put up 265 receiving yards in that first matchup between the Texans and the Browns in on Christmas Eve and. Uh, he he completely shut him down. Uh, I think for the game, Amari only had like four catches, but when covered by Derek Stingley, I think he only had one catch uh, for for negative something yards. And so I, I think a lot of credit deserve deserves it to go to him just in terms of that passing game. And this Texans defense has been very vulnerable to explosive pass plays, and, and we saw it early in this game, but to be able to shut down Amari Cooper, keep him in check. I think Derek Stingley deserves a, a lot of credit. Um, who, who else? I, I I think 
as and, and and I think just on on the flip side, like with the Browns, like as great as Joe Flacco has played this season, he has been vulnerable to interceptions uh, and and giveaways. And when these when the Texans front was able to get pressure, that that's how you end up with, with those back to back pick sixes. And, and so. Um, and it, that goes beyond Jonathan Grenard and Will Anderson Jr. I think the guys in the interior, Sheldon Rankins and Malik Collins, uh, did an excellent job. Like all those guys on that front played injured. Uh, like that entire defensive line was questionable entering the game. And so for them to play the way that they did, I think was huge too. So it, it really, the tone really starts with that front. But I think when you look at the back end, uh, you really have to start with what Derek Stingley has done, like the former number three overall pick, because if if they weren't able to keep Amari Cooper in check, it could have been a completely different game. And, and so I think the fact that they were able to keep that in order, um, I think, is why you, you get that result that we saw on Saturday night. It's so incredible how many of the key contributors on this team are are as young as they are, whether it's CJ, Nico Collins, only a year three pro, Derek Stingley, very young, Will Anderson, very young. You wouldn't know it. We'll find out where they play today, but either way, it's going to be against an MVP quarterback, whether it's Patrick Mahomes or Lamar Jackson. It's going to be thrilling stuff. Ben, I expect I will talk to you about it soon. Thanks, man. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate it. That does it for the games that have been played in the wild card weekend, but let's continue the Sunday six by talking about the games left ahead of us. It's games, plural Steelers bills was supposed to happen Sunday morning. But like I said, since the last time we recorded, it was postponed due to inclement weather, crazy, heavy snowfall, lake effect snow in the Buffalo area. If you saw the photos and video of what was going on up there on Sunday afternoon, I completely understand the decision to postpone it to Monday. Hopefully everybody stayed safe. Looked like multiple feet of snowfall. Hope everybody affected by that dealt with it well. But outside of that, I'm not complaining about having a doubleheader on Monday. Two playoff games, Bills-Steelers, followed by Eagles-Buccaneers. So we're going to preview both of them here on a Monday. For starters, we had already scheduled this when we thought it was the only game of the day. Philadelphia Eagles trying to save a disappointing finish to the season. They go down to take on the NFC South champ Buccaneers. And my guy, NFC East reporter Ralph Vacchiano, joins me now to talk about the injury situation with Philly, as well as what to expect in this matchup. All right, Ralph, I want to start with the guy who's actually playing, and then we'll get to the guy who's sitting out. But Jalen Hurts not carrying an injury designation. Not surprised to hear that he's going to play. Of course, he's going to tough through it. But how much do you think that finger is an issue? Because we all know just because you're playing playing doesn't mean it's 100% right. How much do you think that's going to limit him? Well, I think it's a big issue. I think it's something that they're very concerned about. He didn't uh, practice the first day. They had practice during the week. He obviously couldn't play in the second half last Sunday. Uh, you know, when you have that, it's it's not just rest. You're not resting a guy for no reason this time of year, obviously. So he's hurting. Um, you know, from what we've been told, he practiced fully. Everything that I've heard was he looked good in practice. But that, of course, that's what you're going to hear leading up to a playoff game. No one's going to admit if he's struggling at all or if he's in a lot of pain. And Jalen Hurts has never really let on about any of his injuries, how much he's dealing with. But 
And you're talking about his throwing hand. And so we actually see him out there throwing the football. It does make me wonder how accurate he's going to be, how strong his throws are going to be. And, you know, whether maybe they'll have to rely on the running game a little bit more. Which, I mean, I, I feel like you and I have been screaming that for about six weeks. You know, maybe, maybe the Eagles watch the tape of their game against Tampa earlier this season and hand the ball to DeAndre Swift a little bit more often. But... I mean, in in the passing game, I did the math on this. The Eagles, they don't they don't really mix it up. They do what they're good at. When Jalen Hurts throws the ball 30% of the time this season, he targets A.J. Brown. A.J. Brown obviously not going to play in this game with that knee injury. So, again, this is a team, they they target like three guys. It's, it's Dallas Goddard when he's healthy and the two receivers, A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith. So, without such a huge part of this, what do the Eagles do to fill in that gap? You're, you're right. And, and they, you know, when they do target A.J. Brown that much, they can get away with it because they have good other options. But now you would think they're going to have to lean on Devonta Smith. And then I don't know who the other option is. They've never really developed a good third receiver. You know, I assume Quez Watkins will probably start for A.J. Brown, but he's been spotty as a third receiver. You know, Julio Jones is clearly not what he once was. Um you know, Dallas Goddard with the somewhat struggles of the offensive line, even though it's really good, hasn't been exactly what it was last year. He stays in the block sometimes a little bit more, hasn't been used as much as, that I, as I think he should be used. Uh, he was obviously hurt late in the year, too. So, you know, really their passing game, the only viable option to really dominate the passing game is Devontae Smith. And, you know, if, obviously Todd Bowles knows that. Uh, they're going to not only blitz, Jalen Hurts to try to rush his throws. I'm sure they will have double coverage and more on Smith and make it as hard as possible. But it's a real legitimate problem for the Eagles. They are in the passing game very much a one-dimensional team. They're, you know, they, they may be brown heavy in most of their games this year, but they've never been one-dimensional. This time they're going to be one-dimensional. Everybody knows where that ball is going to have to go, especially if they're looking for a big play. You mentioned Todd Bowles, and I'm fascinated by that element of this. Uh, you know, the, the the Eagles beat the Bucks in Tampa back in week three. It was a 14-point win, but but Jalen Hurts struggled a bit in that game. The Buccaneers picked him off twice. With a second opportunity and with the limitations on this Philadelphia offense, how do you see that much matchup playing a part here with, with Todd Bowles being a pretty renowned guy for being pressure, uh, bringing pressure and for making you uncomfortable? Yeah, you know, he's a good defensive coach and he, you know, known for his blitzing defenses. And if you've watched the Eagles the last half of the season, even if you just watched the last week against the Giants, that offensive line is struggling picking up the blitz. And I can't tell you whether it's the line uh, linemen are struggling to do it or the assignments are wrong and the scheme is off. We've talked about this. My feeling that something has been off with this offensive scheme all year long. And lately it's been picking up blitzes, putting too much pressure on Hurts. The Giants, who are, you know, a blitzing team but not a good defense, were all over Hurts in that game. And, you know, the Bucks have a better defense. Bowles is a better blitzer. Um, you know, I think it could be a lot of trouble, especially when you're taking one weapon in the passing game out. If, if you know, you're Todd Bowles, not only do you know blitz Jalen Hurts, you know now who to cover to make sure he can't dump the ball off for a big play. And that is just playing right into his advantage. And, you know, I think could be it could make for a very long day for the Eagles' offense. I love this subplot over on the other side. I think if you follow football, you know how atrocious the Eagles' defense has been. 
Mike Evans and this Tampa Bay passing attack doesn't sound like a great opponent given what we've seen here, but they get Darius Slay back with a chance to try to revitalize that. And if that wasn't interesting enough, the de facto Philadelphia defensive coordinator right now is Matt Patricia, his old coach in Detroit, who he didn't really get along with very well, let's say. what? How do you see that shaping up? And, and is Darius Slay enough to give you any sort of renewed confidence in the Eagles secondary? Well, it helps. He's been their best corner all year long. Uh, you know, they have Avante Maddox back as well, and that helps. Um, James Bradbury has not played well this season, which has really contributed to some of their secondary issues. But, you know, when you get your number one guy back, it, it's certainly not going to hurt the defense. My question is, you know, he had he had surgery on his knee. He had a couple of weeks off. How healthy is he going to be? Is this rushing to get back for the playoffs? Can he uh, do all the things that he did before? If he can, you got a really good matchup. If he's limited at all, you might have a problem back there. Um, because again, this you know the Eagles are not getting the kind of pressure that they got last year. Their defense, the tackling has been an issue. That includes the secondary and the coverage hasn't been great. So uh, you know they do need Darius Slay back, but I think it's an open question to know, you know to ask what kind of Darius Slay is he actually going to be. We know the Eagles haven't gotten sacks at the level that they did last year, but there's still I mean, plenty of talented options there rushing the quarterback. With Baker Mayfield limited himself, do you think Patricia trusts his front four to get home alone, or do you see a more pressure-oriented game plan for Philadelphia as well? Man, you know, for just the first few weeks, it's been really hard for me to get a read on exactly what Matt Patricia wants to do with this defense. Uh, you know. We've talked about some of the situational things like Hassan Reddick dropping into coverage way more than um, normally he would drop into coverage. To me, if I'm Matt Patricia, I'm selling out for pressuring the quarterback. It's what the Eagles do best. I don't know that I would completely trust my front four to do it alone. They're not the same front four that they were a year ago. Uh, you know, Jalen Carter's been great, but he's definitely hit a wall, um, you know, at least over the last four or five games. Uh, you know, Hassan Reddick has dropped off too. But again, we talked about how he's dropped too much into coverage. I don't think Josh Sweat has had a very good year. Um, I'd help him out. I, I would. I wouldn't just say, "Let me leave the front four there. Let him go after Baker Mayfield." I'd add some blitzes in too, and just whatever I can to disrupt Mayfield. I think if you can disrupt Mayfield, there's a really good chance that their defense can play much better. Uh, you know, he's not. You know, you're not talking about one of the top ten quarterbacks in the NFL here. You're talking about somebody that you can rattle into making some mistakes. And uh, if the Eagles give him time, though, he's talented enough for him to to pick them apart. So I I wouldn't trust that front four if I were him. I suspect he's probably going to bring a little pressure, but, you know, we'll see. We haven't seen a lot of variety from him out of the first couple of games he's called plays. I've been struck by how good Baker has been extending plays. You know, he's, you're not going to see crazy rushing stats from him, but if he has, if a, if he has time in the pocket or even B, if he's got time to extend the play and find somebody downfield, it can be really dangerous. I'm with you. I would try to get guys right in his face. I would try to hit him as often as possible. If that means risking explosive plays on the back end, I think it's probably worth the risk, but I'm very interested to see maybe having, you know, a little extra personnel on the back end will, uh, will help Matt Patricia out. It's going to be a good one. And Ralph, more so than the game itself, I'm interested to see how the storyline changes from here. Obviously if the Eagles win, Maybe you get some confidence about putting a run together. And if they lose, 
It might be the worst vibes in the entire NFL heading to the offseason after the, this year started. So I can't wait to check in with you about this one, win or lose. I appreciate the time, man. Yeah, you know, my pleasure. We'll have a lot to talk about, no doubt about it. <laughs> it's easy to preview the game we knew was going to happen, but we do still have to talk about the game that got postponed. We did. We talked some Steelers Bills last week. If you want to go back and catch that, but with a game Monday, I'm curious to see how these weather conditions affect this. I mean, it was already going to be the case, right? But just because this storm advisory has passed, doesn't mean weather won't be part of this. It looks like. Temperatures in the Buffalo area are going to be in the teens, maybe the low 20s for kickoff. I would imagine wind is going to be part of it. Doesn't look like there's any snow expected to fall, but I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest there will be a lot of it on the ground at Highmark Stadium. Still rough conditions for these guys to play in, although I don't think Chiefs and Dolphins players want to hear about, about that. I'm curious, though, having watched that Dolphins-Chiefs game, it's easy to assume in a game in a in a situation like this that you're going to lean on the run, take the passing element out of it, try not to let the weather affect the matchup. I would guess that's what the Steelers are going to do as well as Najee Harris has been running the ball as much as that's their identity in Pittsburgh. But after watching Patrick Mahomes fling the ball around in minus 20 or minus 20 wind chill what might Josh Allen be able to do for an encore as long as the wind's not blowing 50 miles per hour directly back at him? He certainly has the arm strength to air it out within reason. And then obviously the guy can carry the ball and do anything he wants to on the ground. I think it's going to be a big Josh Allen day. I would look for him to throw the ball as much as he can. And I'm going to guess Josh Allen finishes over 40, 50 yards rushing in this game. I said it last week. I still feel this way. I'll take the Bills to win, but nine and a half points is a large spread for a playoff game against a defense and a coach as good as Mike Tomlin. I'll take the Bills to win close. Yeah, and we'll see just how much this weather affects things moving forward. Like I said, not mad about having two playoff games to watch the first four we're plenty unpredictable. We'll see what we get today. That does it for wild card previews. It feels so weird to still be previewing wild card on Monday. But in the meantime, as he always does, Jay Glazer stopped by our studio on Sunday during the games to chat. Had a chance to talk to him about the direction New England is moving in with Gerard Mayo getting announced as their new head coach, as well as what Bill Belichick might be up to. Hmm, that seems especially interesting right now in light of certain results and a whole host of other stuff. Check out our conversation with Jay. All right, we're back once again for another edition of Ask Glazer with Jay Glazer. Happy playoffs, my man. How are you? I like it, man. Happy playoffs. Okay. You you tipped us off to this last week on Fox. Bill Belichick on his way out in New England. That is official now. Yep. So we might as well see where you can take us with this story so far. The question is, can Gerard Mayo really fix the Pats? And then the second half of that, do you have an inkling on where Bill Belichick might be coaching moving forward? Well, the Pats, they still have, look, they need a quarterback still. There's still a lot of things that they have to do personnel-wise to kind of build that place up. Now, I can tell you this. When Mayo inter interviewed down in Philadelphia, he blew him out of the water, crushed a few years ago. Um, so I think the Crafts look at it and said, okay, he's going to be the heir apparent. We already know who we want in there. Um, but that's big shoes to fill. You know what? Whenever you 
fill the shoes of a legend, a lot of times some of your players just automatically go, well, that's not how Bill would have done it, or Bill would have done it this way, or Bill would have done it that way, and you got to fight a lot of that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Mayo has a, you know, he's a, he's a good young rising star in this league, so uh, they do need a lot more personnel pieces, though, to help him out. Now, as far as where Bill goes, I've always thought Atlanta since the start of it. Um, I thought early on, I thought also like they're the first ones to, to make a fire in Arthur Smith right. and then didn't put a slip in for anybody else. And no one realized it. Like they didn't put a slip in until, you know, do you later. think like, are they trying to throw people off the scent by putting in slips since then? Like, well, I think they got to prepare themselves no matter what. And you have to interview a certain amount of people anyway. Right. So they, they can't just go get Bill and that's that. Um, and I do think, I do know that they're fishing around for other things as well. Um, so, but I think that a guy like Belichick, yeah, he's certainly on the radar. I think when I was told that Arthur Blank wanted to go big game hunting, he wants a big name in there. Okay. I don't know. But also, I think Washington also kind of looking at him. I yeah. think all these openings, I know that they've discussed Bill. So, and I was doing it too. It was so easy to connect the dots of Mike Vrabel can potentially winding yep. up in New England because that's where he played. Yep. Obviously, that's not going to be the case. So the question from Brad... I think we all thought that, but there's a deal in place already for exactly. Mayo in there, which the owner still could have said, okay, you know what? We're going to pay it anyway and then pay Vrabel. So I was a little surprised that didn't happen. Yeah. What do you think that means for Vrabel? And specifically, this this listener viewer wants to know if he has any uh, potential in Carolina, but really anywhere that you might have heard as far as Mike Vrabel goes. I haven't heard anything with Vrabel yet. Um, again, I thought everybody thought he was going to go to New England and that didn't happen. It was just so easy, yeah. you know? Yeah. Was, of course. It made all sense. Um Man, as far as Carolina in him, that'd be an interesting one. I think how he would get along with the, with the owner down there. Personalities um, maybe yeah, involved there, the some strong there. personalities. Yeah, that'd be an interesting one. As we're recording this, the Eagles haven't played Tampa right. Bay. So we'll see how it goes, obviously. But just such a striking end to their season, yeah. the way that it's kind of fallen apart. If they lose... I mean, it seems like there's going to be changes regardless, but where do you think Nick Sirianni stands with ownership in Philly if this if they just completely fall off? I think he's good. I don't think he goes anywhere. He's done a really great job in the last couple of years. And the problem there in, in with the Eagles, like when you have adversity, you don't really get grace. Like other places, they have bad games. Like the 49ers, you know, they get, you know, smashed by the by the Ravens, and it's just like, okay, Adversity is a gift. We take our butt whoopings like a man, and we go back, and all of a sudden, bam, they come back and play great. There are a lot of teams that are able to bounce back and do that. At Philadelphia, there's just there's no such thing as like a little molehill. Everything's a mountain in there. It becomes a lot, and it becomes heavier and heavier and heavier, whoever's coaching in there. And this same organization, they got Andy Reid out. They got Doug Peterson after you know winning a Super Bowl, and, and I think Nick's going through a similar thing. Yeah, it is. It it speaks to the passion there that right. a year removed from a Super Bowl. I'm interested to see how that goes. I I would imagine, yeah, with the run that they've put together, he would be fine. But yeah. it's going to be an interesting conversation if there's. I'm not ends. hearing that. I am not hearing that he's out. Fair enough. Uh, then the last one for you. Last time I talked to you, Jim Harbaugh hadn't played for a national championship yet. He has now won right. it for Michigan, but not a lot of movement on on the front of where his future lies other no, I than think there is chargers yeah the chargers he'll go out there and interview i think next week um you know he's been linked to the raiders um but chargers makes an awful lot of sense what he could do with justin herbert and you know having you know just to, for the area plus I, look i love the chargers job too because they're opening up people out there they don't know what el segundo is it's a little beach town over here not too shabby like, oh, but it's fantastic <laughs> they're opening up this incredible uh training facility and headquarters over there it's gonna be amazing like 
waking up and going to work there is going to be amazing. So I think he's a great fit over there. Um, you know, they're still looking for GM candidates too, like which GM candidate will work with him. And, and, but I think that's the, that would be the front runner right now for him. LA Chargers, that would be a heck of a lot of fun. We'll see how it goes. I imagine as more teams start getting eliminated from the yeah. postseason, maybe you'll see some of this. I think stuff. you'll see a couple more surprises here too. So you could. What a what a teaser <laughs> from our own Jay Glazer. I can't wait to see where this leads. Thanks for the time, man. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. That does it for the Sunday six. That does it for our show. But don't you worry, we will be back Tuesday. We got two wild card games to recap. We'll see what happens with Bills Steelers as well as Bucks Eagles. We'll see what that means for the divisional round. There's only one divisional matchup set right now. We know we've got Packers at Niners on Saturday night. There's still three other matchups to get to. We know the Texans are in. We know the Lions are in. We know the Ravens will be part of it, but We'll see what the matchups are as soon as those games end. We'll be in on Tuesday to break it all down, not to mention the coaching carousel. There could be some hirings. For all we know, there could be some firings as well. We'll see where the news cycle takes us. You're going to want to stay tuned. Please, if you haven't done it, go subscribe on Spotify. Go find us on Apple Podcasts. Wherever you like to get your podcasts, you can find us there, the NFL on Fox podcast. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll be with you this week, the week after that, all the way up until Super Bowl 58, wall-to-wall NFL playoff coverage, everything else in between. You, You get the drill. We'll be back on Tuesday. We'll talk to you then. Appreciate it. Catch you next time.